My name is Pastor Mike Landsman, and this is the podcast for Zion Stone United Church of Christ. This podcast is taken from my weekly Sunday morning sermons. I pray that as you listen to them, they will be a blessing to you and strengthen you in your walk with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's what we have for today. When we heard the Exodus, well, when I was reading the Exodus uh, account this week, I something about verse 4 jumped out at me of chapter 19 where the Lord says, you know, I saw what I, you saw what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. And that phrase, eagle's wings, I bore you on eagle's wings, jumped out at me a little bit. And so we're going to be talking a little bit about how we see this theme of God's deliverance through our readings this morning. And I was reminded while thinking about this and preparing this week of uh, one of my favorite movies um, that my, well, it was like an action movie I was allowed to watch when I was younger, so I was really happy with it. But, you know, revisiting it when I was older, I was like, well, this is actually really good. Uh, it's, uh, it's called uh, Where Eagles Dare, right, with uh, Richard Burton and I think Clint Eastwood. And uh, the whole story is it's during World War II, and they call it Where Eagles Dare because they have to infiltrate this German fortress that's on a very, very, very high mountain. It's really hard to get to, so they have to like parachute in and sneak in through a town, and then there's like a, this cable car that they have to get on that take them all the way to the top of the mountain because they have to rescue uh, a captured general. Hijinks ensue, double crosses, triple crosses, and not everyone is who they say they are, and uh, leads to, you know, one of those explosive uh, finales. But that idea, right, of, a, of a, an impregnable fortress, right, only accessible um, through a cable car, only accessible by the flight of birds is something I think that captures our imagination. And God's actions for his people are, are, are to me, I mean, it's a silly example, right, but it, it made me think of that, like this impossible task given to a group of people who, who are able to do it. And when we get to this reading from Exodus, the Lord is calling to Moses and giving him instructions for the children of Israel. He calls them the house of Jacob. Right? They finally made it to God's holy mountain. They have not yet entered into the promised land. They're sort of in a holding pattern, right? And they are all witnesses to what God has done, right? And we talked about this a while back where the judgment that God poured out upon the Egyptians. He says, I, you yourselves have seen what I did to them. And we, we've talked about in the past about how the judgments upon Egypt are not necessarily just on the Egyptians as a people, but particularly focused on Pharaoh and judgment against the gods of Egypt who Pharaoh represented. And we see this, how it plays out in the Exodus story in the ten plagues and culminates with Passover. Culminates with Passover. God's mighty act of deliverance and God's mighty act of justice. And so God uses this phrase, I bore you up on eagle's wings. Right? So he likens his liberation of the children of Israel from slavery and, there's, and his subsequent bringing them to the mountain as him bearing them up on eagle's wings and bringing them to himself. Bringing them to a place that only he can. And this should make us think maybe of the text from Isaiah, right? We all know it. It's on coffee mugs, those t-shirts, those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint, right? This isn't a, a life verse for marathon runners, you know? We, we sometimes we tend to do that with Bible verses, but that's not what's going on here. 
And so when we think about being born up on the wings of eagles, you know, scholars will, will point this out in regards to this imagery, right? They'll, they'll send you to places like Deuteronomy 32.9, which says, But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. He found him in a desert land, in a howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign God was with him. Right? So we have this beautiful imagery of God encircling his people. And when we read the Exodus narrative, we see this happening, right? God encircling his people in fire and in cloud and in smoke. We see him around them when they walk through the Red Sea on dry grounds. Right? It wasn't wet and the wheels were getting clingy and they were having to push. The text tells us the water was on one side and the other side and they would pass through on dry grounds. God has cared for them by providing for their needs as they have journeyed in the desert to his holy mountain. He has brought them out like wings of eagles. And so why has he done so? Why has God called them out of Egypt? Well, he says, You will be my treasured possession among all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. If, he says, you obey my voice and keep my covenant. So the Lord has brought them out, right? To be a treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And this should make us think, brothers and sisters, of texts like First uh, 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 or Second Peter, where Peter says, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession. God is calling them out He's honoring his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because his whole intention for the children of Israel is to call his people out to liberate them from slavery to Egypt and then to bring them out into the promised land where they will be set apart from the surrounding nations. But set apart in the sense of not being set apart in the sense of geographical distance. Right, Moab, you have to stay 10 miles away. And Edom, you have to stay 10 miles away. And Assyria, you're really naughty, so you have to stay 40 miles away from the people at all times. That's not what the separation means. The separation means in the midst of the surrounding countries, in the midst of these surrounding peoples, they are to be his holy set-apart set apart people, living according to his covenant that he has made with them, which in this text they say, we will do this. That was his point, because God is building, right? What he's doing is he's, he's calling his own people because we see in the other texts, right, in Genesis that all the other nations of the earth have gone their own way. We talked about this at Babel. So God calls one group of people out as his own to be set apart. Not so they can snub their noses and say, we're set apart God's people. We're better than you. You know, John the Baptist says to, to the Pharisees, oh, you pride yourselves on being children of Abraham. He says, God can make children of Abraham out of these very stones. That's not something for them to become prideful and sinful about. But it's something that should give them the impetus to live according to the covenant that God made with them. Because the surrounding nations have given themselves over to worshiping false gods. But gods that cannot compare with Yahweh, the God of Israel. Right, so to be born on eagles' wings for this purpose means they have left slavery and are devoting themselves to serving someone else. They are no longer their own.
And then when we hear the reading from the book of Romans, St. Paul talks a little bit about Christ's work for us. And the Exodus imagery, in my opinion, and in many other people's opinion, I guess, the Exodus imagery, I think, should be one of the primary ways that we interpret the texts of Scripture that talk about salvation, that talk about justification, that talk about what God has done for us in Christ, that is all prefigured in the Exodus story, right? And so Paul talks about God's salvific acts for them, right? How has God saved us, right? So God's act of salvation for the children of Israel, we, we've seen some of that already in the Exodus story. How does that play out for them now? Right, because it's all part of the same story. We talked about this at Revelation class the other night, right? Revelation, uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament, they're not two different separate testaments that are separate. You know, one's for Israel, one's for the church, right? The two testaments aren't separated. They're together. It's the same story that's continuing on. It's not two separate stories. It's the same God working among the same people to accomplish salvation. And Paul says, particularly in verses 6 through 11, we're going to focus a little bit on that. He says, God shows his love in that when we were still sinners, Christ died for us, the godly for the ungodly. The godly for the ungodly. And we have been justified, it says, by his blood. Justified. Justified being, is to be reconciled, right? To be justified means, when we talk about what being justified is or being made righteous in the scriptures, it's God's reordering. God's reordering of what we were intended to be, right? So when we talk about how we have been justified in Christ, a friend of mine uses the example of, of when you're using a Word document or pages or whatever your word processor is, right? And there's a, you, you, highlight, you, you, you highlight a bunch of text on a page and then you press a button to justify it and it kind of like aligns it. He uses that as an example of what that's what being justified is. It's God's realignment of us. And God does that through the death of his son, through his blood. And then it says that we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Here's where it gets tricky, because when we talk about the wrath of God, there's theology that says, okay, on the cross, <coughs> Jesus is absorbing God's wrath, right? So this theology says God has wrath for sin, which is true. The scriptures show us that. And so God has to pour this wrath out on us. So instead of God pouring his wrath out on us, God directs all of his wrath and all of that at his son. And so Jesus takes the wrath and bears the wrath that we should have bear, and God punishes Jesus instead of punishing us. I think there's a little bit of truth there, but I don't think that gives us a fuller or more biblical picture. Because it doesn't say here that Jesus bears God's wrath upon himself, wrath that we, that we need. It says that we shall be saved by him from the wrath of God. Not that he absorbs us from it, but that he saves us from it. Because it says, how much more we shall be saved by his life. See, the cross 
Jesus saving us from the wrath is a reference to the wrath to come. Okay? I think this is a better way of understanding the wrath text here. But he's not talking about wrath in general, right? But he's talking about the coming of God's wrath in the age to come. And if you came to Revelation class on Wednesday nights, you would have heard us talk about this, but you'll have to come when we go through it next time. It only took us a year. You'll love it. It'd be, it's great. We have this idea also of God's wrath as he's really, really, really angry and he, Jesus is like holding it back you know, from like throwing down a, a, a lightning bolt or something. That's not what wrath is in the scriptures, right? God's wrath is aroused when he sees sin and injustice. Not because he's angry, because God is good and God is love and God is holy. And what is good and what is love and holy sees humanity sinning against themselves and one another. And the injustices we commit against one another, it arouses his wrath as a response to human sinfulness. Not that he's full of wrath in general, like it's one of his attributes, right? We have to be very careful, right? The scripture says that God is light, love, and life. The scripture, scripture doesn't say God is wrath. And some people talk about God's wrath as it's one of his attributes. We have to be very careful that we don't go in that direction. But the cross, and then even more so Jesus' life, ensures that the wrath that we will pour out, right, on unrepentant, the unrepentant sinners and, and Satan and the beast and the dragon and all that stuff, right, in the age to come, that Jesus' death on the cross will save us from that. Right? The resurrection. So we will not experience what Revelation calls the second death. That when we pass in peace, we will be in the arms of Christ, in the bosom of Christ, until we are resurrected. Like we'll conf I talk about this all the time. We're going to confess this the creed this morning. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. This made me think about, brothers and sisters, you know, the hymn that we sang this morning and how that tied in with the gospel reading about Jesus calling his disciples, right? The, the, the first hymn we sang, it says, you know, publish glad tidings of Jesus, publish glad tidings of redemption, publish glad tidings of, of release, right? All of this language is speaking of liberation from our slavery to sin and death, just as the children of Israel are liberated from, from the gods of Egypt and from slavery to them. We are liberated from what those images point towards, what those images represent of death and sin and Satan and our own fallenness. And in the gospel reading, right, Jesus is calling those disciples to follow him, and we get their names, right? We got Peter, and John, and Thomas, and Judas, and Simon the Zealot. The Zealots were, were violent reactionaries, violent revolutionaries that tried to militarily overthrow Rome. And then after the ascension of Christ, they actually start going on a rampage and killing Rome. And that's what then Rome in AD 70 comes in and destroys Jerusalem and kills everybody, destroys the temple, and puts an end to that. But Jesus calls them. He names them. Matthew, the tax collector, we talked about him a couple weeks ago. Notorious sinner. Jesus goes and eats with him and calls him to repentance. He calls them by name and he gives them a mission. He sends them to bring his message of reconciliation, his message of redemption, right? And this is something that's ongoing. It doesn't end, right? When they come back, he sends them out. It doesn't happen, it doesn't stop there when they come back. He sends them out continually, right? 
He leaves, he ascends. Well, he doesn't leave, he's still here with us, right? But his ascension, he says, right, wait for the Holy Spirit. And then he'll go into all the world and preach the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We talked about that, I think, a couple weeks ago on Trinity Sunday, what that means. They are tasked to bring this message of, of reconciliation. And so, brothers and sisters, just as those people are named, right? You know, Matthew and Peter and Thomas and all these guys, right? Jesus names you. He names you. Phyllis, Cindy, Rose, Tom, Ellen, Gio, right? God calls us. He's calling you. He's calling all of us. What you have been given, you bring this message of reconciliation and joy to the world. Right? This reconciliation, how God has brought us out of sin and death. Like on the wings of the eagle, right? God has, just as he's liberated the children of Israel, right? I said this is the same story. Just as he's brought them out of liberation from, from, from the gods of Egypt and sin and death, he's brought all of you, right? Because we've all been participants in that. Through, the, through our faith and through the waters of baptism, we have been brought into the family, to the kingdom of God, and we have experienced this liberation. God has put us on eagle's wings and flown us away from sin and death, and he has called us to be his set-apart people. So even though we live in the world, we are not of the world. And God doesn't put distance markers on us, right? Like, okay, so I'm going to go here, and the people who go to these terrible places, they have to stay 10 feet away from me over there. And this group of people I don't like, they have to stand 10 feet away from me over there because I'm a set-apart person. No, God has saved you and liberated you and released you from bondage to sin and death so you can turn around to those people who are right next to you and not over there to bring them in. Here's what Christ has done to save you. Receive it. Turn away from sin. Turn away from following your desires. Turn away from slavery to Satan and to your, your fallen desires and turn to Christ. Because he has performed this great act of redemption for us, not only through his cross, but how much more through his life. And to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, be all glory together with the Father who is from everlasting and is all holy, good, and life-creating spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you are ever in the area, please join us for worship. We'd love to meet you. If you have any questions about what you heard or if you would like prayer, please reach out to us on our Facebook page or our website, zionstoneucc.com. We also are raising funds for some repairs to our stained glass windows. So if you get a benefit from listening to this podcast, please head over to GoFundMe.com slash Zion Stone Church Repair Fund. God bless you and thanks for listening.